Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Whatever happens, safeguard yourself. Everyone is trying to figure out why our nation is becoming so violent. It's the mass shootings that grab the headlines, but just try to figure out how many people are murdered every day in America. And I don't think you'll be able to find that statistic. I have looked for it, but the FBI admits that their data is very incomplete because many local law enforcement agencies don't fill out all of the reports and send the information up the line. But in addition to the increase in murders that we're seeing, there is theft, assault, and all the rest of it. Why are we having this outbreak of increased violence in our nation? There may be legislative reasons for it and laws that need to be changed, but at the heart, there is one simple thing that is causing it. When a society turns away from the truth of Scripture, it begins to deteriorate and to disintegrate. The book of Genesis says that in the days before the flood, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus said that the last days would be characterized by the increase of wickedness. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, boastful, proud, abusive, without love, without self-control, and brutal. So how can we stay safe in a world like this? Well, this is Robert J. Morgan, and that's what I want to deal with in just a moment from Philippians chapter 3. And if you are where you can open your Bible, then turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll look at the first three verses of that chapter. While you're doing that, let me tell you about a book that I've written, which, in my opinion, should be in every leader's library. And I'm talking about our political leaders. It's 100 Bible Verses That Made America. I went through the history of America and discovered many different times when a verse of Scripture has made the difference in a person's life who later became or was at that time a significant person when it relates to the history of our nation, or when a particular verse made difference, made the difference on some occasion. And I collected those and put them together in this book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, which is like a biblical tour of American history. I'd like for every governor and senator and uh, representative, uh, every judge, every mayor, every city, count, city councilman and, and school board member to have one of these uh, books. And I think that it can help turn things around in the United States. So if you know someone who has been elected, maybe just recently, into office, or someone who is in a place of power or authority or influence, then why not give them a copy of this book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America? 
and you can find it wherever books are sold. Well, I simply cannot guarantee that none of us will ever experience threats or dangers or acts of violence or thefts or all of the rest of it. In this world today, all over the world, violence is occurring, and much of it is being directed against the people of God. We are living in a dangerous world, and that's all there is to it. But we can live in such a way that Satan will never be able to truly hurt us in any ultimate sense. And that's the subject of Philippians chapter 3. And I want to read this chapter, actually the first three verses with you, and sort of dissect them because there are some wonderful truths in in this little paragraph. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Further, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. It is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, chapter 3 begins with the word further. Some translations say finally, as though Paul was getting ready to conclude his letter. But the Greek word loipos here has a range of meanings, and in this case, Paul was not saying in conclusion or finally. He was saying, now, there are some other things that I want to bring up to you. Many commentators see this as a very abrupt change in the letter, but I don't think that it is. Paul's great purpose is for them to stand firm in one spirit, and he illustrated how Jesus had done this at the beginning of chapter 2, and how Timothy had done and was doing this, how Epaphroditus had done this, and now he's going to show us how he is doing that, recommending at the end of this passage that we follow his example. In fact, as we'll see in an upcoming study, he tells them on three occasions to follow his example later on in chapter 3. But there is a new element that is introduced here, that having the needed safeguards set into place in our church and in our lives is very important, and it begins with rejoicing in the Lord. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Apparently, Paul had told them this or written it to them in a prior letter, but he's repeating it now. There is something very important to notice here. Notice exactly what Paul is saying. He is giving them a commandment to rejoice in the Lord, and it says that this attitude, this activity, this habit of rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard for the soul. Now, the word safeguard here meant something that keeps us secure or renders us safe. So, Paul seems to be saying that when we rejoice in the Lord— There is something about that attitude that becomes like a protective shield around us. Now, I have never thought of joy like this before until I studied this passage. I have studied the subject of joy in the Bible for years, and it's made a tremendous difference to me. I've looked up every verse I could find about joy and rejoicing and gladness and cheer. I've written about it and preached about it and learned something about the power of a joyful life. And I have known and I've memorized many verses about joy. I recall the first time I really got a hold of Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I visualized joy 
as a miniature energy factory inside of us, generating enthusiasm and giving us the strength we need for living. And I recall finding Psalm 100 on an occasion when I was serving the Lord out of a sense of duty and drudgery. And I read those words, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. And it really changed the way that I went about my everyday duties. The Lord doesn't want us serving Him just out of drudgery, but with joy, with gladness. I recall learning about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. I realized that I could not within, within my own natural self produce the joy of the Lord. I had to be yielded and open to the, His Spirit and let Him produce it for me and in me and through me. And I also learned the importance of joy and leadership during a very difficult time in my pastoral career when everything went wrong at the same time and in serious ways and stayed that way for a while. I was overwhelmed with the situation and on the verge of faltering, but then the Lord gave me 15 Bible verses about joy and told me to go onto the platform and smile and teach the Bible with joy, and something about that reassured both me and my people, and steadied the church and got us to a better place. So I have thought of joy as an electrical generator, as the necessary ingredient for Christian service, as a result of the Holy Spirit's working in my life, and as a powerful mechanism for leadership. But I never before thought of joy as a safeguard, or a shield, or a weapon, as an invincible cloak around us, or as a guardian who served as a security officer. When I go to some of the churches that I speak at, I'm met and shouted by one of the security officers. At one church, some of them are off-duty naval SEALs, and I love those guys, and I'm never afraid of anything when they're nearby because they're never afraid of anything. But I've never thought of joy as a Navy SEAL assigned to me by God for my own security. But here Paul says that the practice of the joy of the Lord is the safeguard for the soul. He was drawing from the book of Psalms, which tells us over and over again to rejoice in the Lord. I have a whole list of references, but I don't think it's necessary to give them. Paul was using the language of David. Well, what did David mean and what does Paul mean by rejoicing in the Lord? I think it means that you and I have developed the habit of elevating our inmost spirits by learning to recall over and over and over again the truth that we know about the Lord and His grace towards us. There is a God and He made you. He knows your name. He knows your failures, but He loves you. He knows your weaknesses, but He helps you. He knows your problems, but He guides you through them. Jesus came and died for you and rose again, and he ascended to heaven. He reigns in authority. He is coming in glory. He has given us the Bible with everything in it we need to know. It's there within his covers. He wants to use us and has a plan for our lives. The troubles of this world are passing away. The day of his returning is drawing near. We are heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. We have heaven made for us and ahead of us, and we are persuaded." that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of our God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
You cannot bring those things to mind again and again without your heart and your spirit being elevated. There is joy in the Lord, and there is joy in all there is about the Lord. The joy of the Lord is a safeguard. It protects you from fear and paranoia, from dejection and despondency, from weariness and worry, from temptation and sin, even from pain and sorrow. It protects us against the devil and his demonic forces. Satan simply doesn't know what to do with a joyful Christian. He can do a lot with believers who have lost their joy, but you might as well try to hold an inflated soccer ball underwater as to try to submerge a joy-inflated Christian. So joy is an attitude, an activity that is a piece of armor. It is the safeguard of the soul. Now, the second way here in this passage to safeguard our soul is by watching out for errors. Look at this again. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the true circumcision. Now, Paul referred to false teachers here as dogs. Now, you may be a dog lover. I don't have a dog right now. I travel too much, and I don't want to take care of a dog, but I've had dogs all my life, and people love their dogs. But according to Dr. Gordon Fee, Gordon Fee in his commentary of this passage, that wasn't so in biblical times. Dogs were scavengers running wild, and the Jews considered them unclean. And so Paul used this word to characterize the false teachers who were dogging him everywhere. Who were these false teachers? They were what we call the Judaizers, teachers who believe that you have to convert to Judaism or at least adopt Jewish practices if you want to become and to stay a Christian. They said, you have to receive Christ as Savior, plus be circumcised, plus keep the Jewish calendar, plus keep the Jewish diet if you want to be saved. Jesus was a Jew, and Christianity is the evolution of Judaism. It is the next phase of Judaism, so you have to adopt Judaism if you want to embrace Christianity. The whole subject of circumcision is, to me, a very strange topic for the pulpit, but the writers of the Bible had no qualm in talking about it, so let me try to delicately explain the significance of what Paul is talking about. When God called Abraham and chose that man to become the first Jewish man on earth and to produce a family that would become the nation that would produce the Messiah, he, God, ordained this ritual or practice of male circumcision. It was certainly a hygienic practice in biblical times, but it represented something more. When a Jewish man and woman came together in Old Testament days, they knew each other. They were potentially creating the lineage that would lead to the Messiah. God told Abraham, in your seed, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. What is seed? It is the seminal fluid produced by the male reproductive tract that contains sperm cells capable of connecting with corresponding cells produced in a woman's body so that there will be a conception. That's really the most delicate way that I know to say it. This seed was passed down from generation to generation, 
and so the great symbol of the covenant was circumcision, which represented the transmission of the seed of the Messiah and involved in this act of intimacy both men and women. But after the Messiah was born, he established the church, and the church was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Well, to some of the Jewish believers, the ritual of circumcision was so important, they thought a Gentile man could not be saved without undergoing this medical procedure. They would say to a man, good, you want to become a Christian? Well, let's go see a surgeon. As you can imagine, that was a significant barrier to church growth. Plus, it was totally untrue theologically. So Paul spent vast portions of his entire ministry fighting this heresy. Just read Galatians chapter 5. His message that we are saved by grace through faith alone was paramount. We do not have to come to Christ through Judaism. We come to him just as we are by faith alone. It is not faith plus ritual or faith plus circumcision or faith plus baptism or faith plus anything. To keep yourself safe, Paul said to the Philippians, you need to safeguard your theology and keep your beliefs anchored in Scripture. Now, I do not personally know of anyone still preaching the same exact Judaizing message that Paul confronted. But the danger of false teachers is greater now than ever. You have to know exactly what they teach and believe before you join it. When I was a pastor, we articulated our beliefs in our church material and on our website. We were very honest and open and, and thrilled to tell people what we believed. We talked about the Bible. We talked about the person of Christ and the person of God and the nature of salvation and the personality of the Holy Spirit and the second coming, and we listed those things which were core beliefs. But let me read you a statement of faith I found recently on another website. I'll not identify this church, but you can find something like this on very many church websites. I picked this particular church totally at random, and I went to their beliefs, and this is what it said. We are a progressive, reconciling church defined by these principles. We accept and celebrate human diversity, being radically inclusive and welcoming people of every color nationality, sexual orientation, gender identity and expression, physical and cognitive ability, and economic status. We believe in social justice and support advocacy with persons experiencing poverty and oppression. We maintain a deep belief in the instruction to love one another, made clear in the teachings of Jesus Christ. We live, live out these principles with spiritual vitality while believing that our church flourishes with many points of view, opportunities for creative expression, and participatory worship services. We are open-minded, but we also strive to be open-hearted and a true haven of acceptance for those who find their way through our open doors. We are followers and disciples of Christ Jesus who calls us into ministry with the marginalized. Well, that was their statement of faith, and some of it sounds pretty good. There's some of that that I would embrace, but some of it is code language for beliefs that are distinctly unbiblical. And notice what is missing. 
there is nothing about God there, nothing about the Bible, nothing about sin and justification and redemption, nothing about eternal life or death, nothing about heaven or hell or the second coming. And Jesus is only referenced as a teacher who taught us to love one another and to minister to the marginalized. Well, he did do that, but there is so much more about him, isn't there? And this is why I'm almost constantly beside myself about pulpits all over the nation that do not preach the Word of God in a consistent, exegetical way. Recently, I articulated my views on this for a post that I put on my social media platforms, and I want to share it with you. From the beginning of my ministry, I believe that there cannot be biblical conduct without biblical content. Trendy sermons and motivational talks don't build a church or those who attend it. The pulpit is not a practice field, but a battlefield. And our weapons are not sticky points, but Bible verses, well, exegeted in their context. My greatest joy as a pastor was preaching and teaching to, as Titus 1 tells us, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Other goals are laudatory but this is mandatory. The pulpit is the foundation of a healthy church. The Word of God is the foundation of a pulpit, and Christ himself is the cornerstone. So we have to be very careful today about what other people are teaching and what so-called Christians are advocating. We cannot be safe if we do not rejoice in the Lord and maintain our biblical theology and doctrine and worldview and lifestyle based upon the clear exegetical teachings of Scripture and their content based upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. So I believe we can glean all of that out of Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. That's a lot of content for these two little verses, but the verses are packed with significance. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs and those mutilators of the flesh. So, ladies and gentlemen, the safeguards of the soul are to rejoice in the Lord and to watch out for the dogs. Thanks for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. Please share this podcast with a friend and remember to check out my books, including 100 Bible Verses That Made America, wherever books are sold. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing by Jared Bromit. Print editing by Sherry Anderson. This message is outlined, edited, and posted as a blog on my website by Luke Tyler. Music by Jordan Davis and Elijah Rowe. You can find that manuscript at the blog page of robertjmorgan.com, and there you'll find many other resources as well. Thank you so much for listening, and may God be with you until we meet again.